everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat with the esteemed Dr. Julian Harris, who has two day jobs. He is a partner on the healthcare services team at Deerfield and chairman and CEO at Concerto Care. Deerfield is an investment firm dedicated to advancing healthcare. Concerto Care was formed recently by the merger of Concerto Health and Perfect Health and is one of the nation's leading risk-based healthcare companies providing integrated care for seniors in their homes. Before Deerfield, Dr. Harris was the founding president of Care Allies, Cigna's family of multi-payer provider services and home-based care businesses. Previously, he led U.S. strategic operations for Cigna, was an advisor to Google Ventures, led the healthcare team in the White House OMB, where he oversaw a $1 trillion budget and provided management and policy oversight for programs including Medicare, Medicaid, FDA, NIH, and CDC. He also served as the chief executive of the $11 billion Massachusetts Medicaid program. Dr. Harris trained in internal medicine and primary care at Harvard Medical School's Brigham and Women's Hospital, practiced at Cambridge Health Alliance, was a Rhodes Scholar, and graduated from the Wharton School of Business and the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited about this conversation. It's great to be here. So for the audience, it'd be great to walk through your journey through healthcare since you've held a variety of different roles within investing, private sector, public sector, just a really incredible journey. So can you walk us through that experience so far? Sure. So I'm a primary care physician by training, but had been to medical school and business school sort of earlier along the path and spent some time working in consulting. Had an opportunity to do a consulting project for the state of Massachusetts, helping them to think about how to build accountable care organizations in the context of the Medicaid program. And that consulting project evolved into an opportunity to actually come into state government and to lead the Medicaid program for the state of Massachusetts. During my tenure, we had the opportunity to not only establish accountable care organizations for the Medicaid population focused on integrating primary care and behavioral health, but also the chance to lead the country's first capitated Medicaid duels demonstration following the passage of the Affordable Care Act focused on establishing a new and innovative model of care delivery for patients with Medicare and Medicaid that focused on addressing medical, behavioral, and needs for long-term services and supports with an intensive focus on the social determinants of health. After my time in Massachusetts, I had an opportunity to work in the Obama-Biden administration, leading the healthcare team in the Office of Management and Budget. OMB oversees finance policy and regulation across the federal government, and I manage the healthcare portfolio. So oversaw those areas of focus for CMS, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, SAMHSA, HRSA, ARC, a number of the other federal healthcare agencies. Spent a significant amount of, of my time there working with CMS on new models through the Innovation Center on opportunities to address innovation through Medicaid 1115 waivers and through changes to the Medicare fee-for-service payment rules and our approaches working with Medicare Advantage plans. After my time in the federal government, spent some time advising Google's venture firm and then spent four years at Cigna in a couple of different roles, first leading strategic operations across our U.S. businesses and then first aggregating and then running a family of healthcare services companies for Cigna called Care Allies focused on population health and management services, Medicare, ACO, and Medicare Advantage risk arrangements, and home-based primary care and then came to Deerfield. Deerfield is the largest healthcare-focused investment firm in the country. We invest across healthcare with a focus that includes sort of every aspect of the field from 
therapeutics to diagnostics and devices to healthcare services, health technology, digital health, and data and analytics. And that kind of healthcare services and tech focus is the one that I prioritize. And very recently, the beginning of the year, in addition to my role on the Deerfield team as a partner on the healthcare services team, I stepped in as chairman and CEO of a company called Concerto Care, which I know we'll talk more about in just a bit. Had been working with that company for the past couple of years and really excited now to lead it. Incredible journey so far. We have a lot of layers to unpack there across your journey. And before we dive into Concerto Care, I wanted to spend a little bit of time speaking about the Black Lives Matter movement and its relevance in the healthcare ecosystem. So last year, Nearly every organization published a letter in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in response to a lot of acts of police brutality last summer. And you also have done some work with fellow Black leaders in the health tech, health investment, healthcare startup space around emphasizing to companies what important work still needs to be done, whether that's in company focus, in company management, et cetera. So can you talk through some of your reflections over the last nine months or so on where we've grown as an ecosystem and what work remains to be done? Sure. So I'd say one of the things that I know I and a number of other folks who have platforms have increasingly sought to do is to make it clear that some of the kinds of things that you see on television or hear on the news are not isolated incidents that only happen to people who have different kinds of challenges from a socioeconomic perspective, complicate their lives, or what have you. But these are challenges that, broadly speaking, people, regardless of their background, people who are African-American and, in certain cases, more broadly, uh, people of color, face in this country and are ones that we will only make progress towards addressing when we are more open about just how pervasive they are and the impact that they have on individuals and on communities in ways that are challenging and systematic. I think that one of the things that has been striking to me has been really a recognition that while there are sort of one-off areas that one might focus on, that there really is a need for a comprehensive set of solutions and sort of across sectors. And so within healthcare, one of the things that I've seen is a greater focus on looking both at how companies pick their areas of focus and also how they pick their teams. It is not infrequent for us to see pitch decks where there are no women in positions of leadership or where there are no people of color in positions of leadership. And My sort of simple way of thinking about this is we need to get to a place where the leadership of organizations at all levels reflect the incredibly rich diversity of this country. Heaven forbid that means that I like for us to be at a place where half the people in positions of leadership are women and that we have from an ethnic diversity perspective that we see companies, investor-backed and public companies and not-for-profits just broadly rendered, that we begin to see companies at all levels, reflect the diversity of this great country. And so how we get there and the roles that different kinds of organizations can play, I think, is an ongoing topic of conversation, but it's one that we've seen greater focus on across the industry from sort of mandates or gentle nudges to strong nudges to directives from a range of organizations around what boards need to look like to a number of leading organizations 
being much more thoughtful about their own search processes, their own ways of building teams. So part of it is sort of representation actually matters and it changes not only the performance of businesses, but also changes the ways that they engage and work to solve problems. The other thing I would say is the work itself. So we have the great privilege to work in healthcare and there's no question, and COVID certainly has made very clear that these longstanding conversations about addressing disparities in healthcare and healthcare outcomes really has to be a major focus for every company and organization that works in this space. We've seen the disproportionate impact on morbidity and mortality in the context of COVID, informed in part by kind of relative prevalence of chronic conditions that create risk factors for COVID, but also the kind of types of roles that black and brown folks are often in that are considered essential, but have over the course of the pandemic put them at disproportionate risk. And now we're in a place where there are both concerns related to vaccine hesitance due to certainly in the African-American community, but in other communities of color as well, various concerns that are informed by a long history of mistreatment in the healthcare system and in the context of biomedical research that are well known in communities of color and and particularly in in this case in the African-American community where people sort of grew up hearing about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, for example, where a group of African-American men were allowed to continue to be observed in an observational study years after penicillin was known to be a an effective treatment for syphilis. And that story is new for many people and almost never new for someone in the African-American community. But there are other stories like that that have created sort of longstanding areas of distrust. And then people have their own personal experiences with interacting with the healthcare system that inform that as well. But we know that we will not get to herd immunity unless we figure out a way to ensure that all communities feel like the vaccines are safe. But beyond vaccine hesitance, there also have been real challenges related to vaccine access and distribution where in certain states or geographies, for a whole host of reasons, there have been challenges ensuring that the vaccines were distributed in a manner that increased the likelihood of equitable access. And so I'd say both in the how do we take the steps needed to address the hesitance piece, and that challenge is real, but that challenge, while important to address, can't be used as an excuse not to ensure that there aren't focused efforts to prioritize equitable access and distribution at the local and state and federal level. And I know that this has been a a major area of focus for the Biden administration, and they have established a very clear set of leaders who are focused on these areas and it's top of mind, but it really is going to require engagement at all levels of government in partnership with the private sector and the not-for-profit sector as well, and a really sort of whole of government and whole of kind of public and private enterprise effort to ensure that we are on a path to not only make progress from a healthcare perspective, but also from an economic perspective. That's probably yeah. more than <laughs> what you were asking for in, in that question, but I know we've talked about some of these issues, so I figured I'd try and cover it all in one fell swoop. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned all of that because awareness and acknowledgement is only a very small first step in the right direction. And from there, you need really strong and representative leadership to steer the ship 
And so I'm glad that we have that some of our highest levels of government, for example, but looking forward to seeing more movement there on the private sector side with startups, public companies, you name it. Let's shift to talk a little bit more about the landscape that Concerto operates in, senior care. So Medicare may be insolvent in the next few years, strong prevalence of polychronic conditions across the senior population, rising prices. All of this creates a perfect storm for what senior care is going to look like in terms of costs and outcomes. And much of that is driving America's healthcare spend. So at a meta level, what is the solution to some of these really deeply entrenched thorny problems? So that could be you know, that could be an entire phone call. But what I would say at a high level is if we think about sort of the broad challenges related to cost quality access and patients and providers' experience of care, various forms of triple and quadruple aim frameworks. I think that for the Medicare population, a significant part of the opportunity is to think about how we continue to evolve from just imagining that program as a form of reimbursing for services and building on what is now a multi-year, multi-decade journey towards having it be a force for improving the quality of care while also being mindful of the challenges that we faced from a cost and budget perspective. I think that in some areas we've made significant progress, in other areas there are opportunities for improvement, but we have to continue to think about ways to accelerate innovation because if you look at the spending curves for the Medicare program over time, if we aren't thoughtful about ways to ensure that we are both not just maintaining but improving quality, but also ensuring that we are getting the most for our dollar in terms of the services and the programs that are delivered, it will be challenging to sustain over time. And it really is one of the treasures of our federal system. And so I think that's why there really is bipartisan consensus that we have to think about ways to drive innovation in the Medicare program. And we're seeing that from a whole host of angles. I think that in terms of the ways that the private sector has, and I think will continue to engage, we've just seen a tremendous amount of innovation. And I think it's accelerated substantially since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the creation of the Innovation Center, a number of ways that I think Medicare Advantage plans have driven innovation in addition to the innovation we've seen sort of coming out of the both the Innovation Center and the Medicare, kind of broad Medicare, original Medicare program in terms of value-based payment. But there's still a lot of opportunity. I think that we're going to see health plans and I would imagine the federal government increasingly looking to partner with providers around taking greater accountability for the total cost of care. I think we're going to see even greater focus on clinical outcomes and on addressing the social determinants of health for the population, we have real opportunities to think about not only food insecurity and housing and transportation, which are the three that, that people often reference. And importantly for those three, I think that people often underestimate the extent to which, particularly for food insecurity and for, for transportation uh, challenges, the extent to which those challenges are not necessarily tied to income. And partially tied to income, but actually there can be challenges that are more 
related to the patient's ability to navigate gaining access to those services. I think we're also increasingly seeing a focus on the impact of social isolation and loneliness. Certainly, COVID has brought additional focus and attention, but in all honesty, this is not a new challenge. I had a, until um, very recently, a a 95-year-old neighbor who I was very close to, and she was still living at home independently, but watching the ways that she navigated the healthcare system, the ways that she interacted with her family members who were very supportive, but just seeing opportunities for our collective system to provide additional services and supports for frail seniors and also looking for the opportunities to do that in ways that really improve outcomes and drive affordability for all the various payers, whether that be the individual patient or a Medicare Advantage plan or or the federal government in the context of, of CMS. I'm glad you brought up CMMI as a vehicle for innovation that will hopefully have a stronger presence. I've seen a lot of articles doing a retro of the last decade of CMMI. What are some of the critiques of some of the models that they've run largely around, but most of them are voluntary. It may allow providers to take on some amount of risk, but not for total cost of care or potentially cherry picking risk even. So it'll be exciting to see what the evolution of those models look like over the next several years. I think that's right. But I think folks often sort of miss that the innovation center was always designed to have an ethos of test and learn. Every model that has been developed at the Innovation Center has leveraged lessons learned from prior models and both the data and the insights that come from that, but also the operational learnings that need to be implemented more broadly in order to support more advanced models, the ways that they interact both with providers and with health plans. And so I think that we are going to continue to see iterative progress in terms of the ways that those models are designed but also in the broader ecosystem. Remember that there was very little exposure to even meaningful upside-only structures when the Innovation Center first launched. And so providers' willingness or their sense of their own readiness to take on risk was very different a decade ago. And I think that there was some reticence to move too quickly towards downside risk because there was concern that the kind of prior wave of provider-driven HMOs where there was downside risk in certain cases, there were challenges, there were cases where really some providers struggled significantly from taking more risk than they were ready for. And so I think that there's been some maturing in the broader ecosystem and some recognition that through investment in the providers who were not prepared a decade ago, both physician groups, but also even health systems, I think that there probably will be more willingness and appetite for models with more risk over time as people feel like they have more infrastructure and more experience to enable them to be successful in those models. Yeah. So let's shift to concerto care. Can you walk the audience through the three different pillars of the business? So concerto care partners, in-home care, and the pace focus business, and how you think about measuring success across all of those pillars. A lot of these There are companies that exist solely to serve one of these three pillars. So it's really great to see all three tied together and driving synergies within the single umbrella of Concerto Care. So we do three things at Concerto Care. In our first model, we partner with Medicare Advantage and Duals Plans and work with their existing provider network and primary care providers to 
deliver a range of intensive services that enable us to help seniors not only have healthier lives and to maintain their independence, but also to help manage quality outcomes and the total cost of care. So we provide a broad array of wraparound services that include an intensive focus on geriatric services, geriatric psychiatry, social work, behavioralists who have a range of clinical backgrounds, community health workers and others, and leverage that broader care team to engage with patients who have an enormous amount of medical complexity, in certain cases, behavioral health challenges, as well as social complexity. But we do it in a way that enables us to enhance the health plan's partnerships with their network providers. In our second model, we actually have the ability to serve as the primary care provider of record, similar to our first model. These are both home-based in-person and virtual models. So we don't build brick and mortar clinics as sort of our way of engaging with this population. And so for our geriatric primary care business, we are the primary care provider of record, but those patients have access to that broad array of wraparound services that I mentioned for our partner program. And then in our third program, our PACE programs are the program for all-inclusive care of the elderly. The PACE program is this hidden jewel within the context of how patients with Medicare and Medicaid can receive access to services and care. But fundamentally, while there's often a significant amount of focus in the context of PACE on it being a center-based model, and in the context of PACE, we do have a, a physical presence, but a lot of the magic of PACE really happens in the home. And so for us, it really is a part of that broader continuum of services that we make available in the home through our other two programs. But we are able to leverage a lot of the lessons learned from each of those programs to reinforce our success and our outcomes across the board. One of the things that excites me so much about the PACE model is that there really sort of is a significant opportunity to think about how we enable seniors to stay in their homes. So to qualify for PACE, a patient or beneficiary needs to be nursing home eligible. And these are patients who, with the right kinds of supports, can have full lives in their own homes with the kinds of medical and behavioral and social supports that they need, the kinds of respite and other supports that their caregivers need. And caregiver support really is a big effort and priority for us across all three components of our model because we know the impact that it can have on improving outcomes and quality of life for our patients. And so those are the three areas of focus for concerto care. And it is true that there are companies that do one of those three things. We really see a lot of opportunity to think about ways that the models can reinforce and sort of serve as laboratories for innovation for each other and enable us to serve seniors comprehensively and over time. Can you speak a little bit more around sort of challenge context for the audience? So with Concerto Care Partners, where you're building a business of wraparound services for existing PCPs and that relationship with complex patients, that is a very different operational model than you owning the relationship and being the primary care provider of record. And 
then pay separately. These are folks who would qualify for a level of institutional care that now need to be in the home. Like, how do you think about juggling all of these different operating and care models as a business? And what are some of the metrics you're using to make sure that you're hitting your targets for each of them? So operationally, the models are not as different, at least in our case, as one might imagine, because they all really build up from that interdisciplinary care team that's providing services in the home. As I mentioned, in the PACE context, there is a PACE center, a physical location. But a lot of the magic of PACE really happens in the home. And this is one of the things that I think people don't understand about the model. A lot of the drivers of cost and outcomes are really related to what you're able to achieve with that patient in the home. So our PACE approach probably is more intensive in terms of the ways that we think about what's provided in the home versus what's delivered in the center than some other folks who don't have that orientation. But we really see PACE as a home-based care model where there are ways to extend what we do in the home through our PACE centers, but the sort of foundational opportunities for impact and quality and cost really are driven based upon what we can do with that patient in the home. In terms of metrics, you know, this is this is uh, Medicare Advantage or Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. And so we have, you know, certainly a set of indicators of quality that we track. And on the cost side, you know, many of the drivers relate to the things that you would imagine. So, you know, our patients going to the ED, are they being admitted to the hospital? Are they being readmitted to the hospital? Where are they being discharged to when they leave the hospital? Can they be discharged to the home with the right kinds of supports? Are they having to have SNF stays? If so, how long are those SNF stays? And what is the discharge plan from the SNF if the SNF is it can't be avoided altogether? So there are a range of metrics that we track. And then there are also ways that we take a very condition-specific approach to managing patients who have complex chronic conditions. And so we have kind of condition-specific metrics that we track as well. And on the pay side, we are both the provider and the health plan. And so have a number of ways to leverage being in that context, the pay provider to ensure we're really optimizing from a variety of angles that are different from ways that we might have similar flexibility when we're working with a health plan partner, but needing to think about things a bit differently when we're not also the payer. So as we think about you now being the new leader at the helm of Concerto Care, what are your primary foci and expansion plans around these businesses? And specifically from the lens of these sound like very capital intensive, even though they're not necessarily center-based, all of these models, and operationally intensive. So how are you thinking about expansion and growth? So we already are expanding pretty significantly geographically in terms of the markets where we operate. Today, we have a number of ways that we're leveraging technology to drive some of the outcomes that we achieve with our own clinicians and in certain cases with other partners. We also work to think about ways that we will continue to evolve our product offering within each one of the verticals, but also leverage synergies across the three of them. And there's some pretty exciting things that on our internal roadmap to think about doing that over time. And then ultimately, part of what's so exciting to us is the ability to think about partnering with organizations that are looking to innovate and work with us, whether that 
be a risk-bearing provider organization where we can step in and support them with this more intensive home-based model than many other brick-and-mortar risk-based providers might be interested in prioritizing from an investment perspective themselves or working with a health plan partner to do the same. But it's a really big market, and I'm excited for all the other folks in the space, and people sort of often ask about what we think about competitors, but I, having overseen the, the Medicare program for the country, I know how few Medicare beneficiaries today have access to the kinds of models that we and some of the other innovators in our space make available. And it will take quite some time for us to collectively provide access to these kinds of services to seniors who really need them and would benefit from them. And so I think we're in the early innings as an industry in terms of the folks who are focused on this population and providing the kinds of comprehensive services that we make available. And we're really excited about the days and weeks and years ahead. Love it. I'm really excited to follow Concerto Care Success. And as you said, there are enough dollars to go around and enough beneficiaries and enough poor quality and outcomes today in the space for plenty of companies to thrive. So excited to follow your success. I know we're coming up on our last minute, so I want to be mindful of your time. So we'll end the conversation here. Thank you, Julian, for joining us. Learned a ton about the senior care space and your incredible journey as a healthcare leader. Thank you again for gracing us with your presence. I appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day.